This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer, and welcome to this edition of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Today's topic, a presidential decree, Jewish law, and the opening of meatpacking plants. If you want to understand how Jewish law differs from secular law, that difference is most obvious in the president's order this week regarding the meatpacking industry. Sadly, it's least obvious in some so-called ultra-Orthodox communities, but we'll get to that at the tail end of this podcast. Earlier this week, the president invoked the Defense Production Act to order meatpacking plants in this country to remain open, or to reopen if already closed, despite the fact that doing so puts at risk the lives of the workers in those plants. Jewish law would shut down most, if not all, of the plants because of that risk. To make matters worse, the president also pledged to shield meatpacking companies from any legal liability if workers become ill or die because they were forced to work in what clearly are unsafe conditions. So not only are these workers put in danger, they'll have no recourse in law, or their families won't, when it comes to paying their medical bills or funeral expenses. Jewish law also takes exception to that. If a person injures another person, the Torah says, quote, he pay for his cure, unquote. Putting someone in a position knowing that he or she may become ill and that person becomes ill is a clear case of injuring that person. True, the president did say that he had directed the Department of Agriculture to take all appropriate action, his words, to ensure that meatpacking plants operate under CDC and OSHA guidelines. But what he neglected to say is that those guidelines are voluntary. They're not mandatory. He also didn't say that those guidelines don't really make much sense in meatpacking plants. You just have to look at the TV footage of how the assembly lines in meatpacking plants run to know how social distancing rules are simply not possible. Workers are often only inches apart, not six feet apart. They need to be closer together because what they're doing is taking apart the carcasses of dead animals. It's labor-intensive work, as well as gruesome to behold. If workers stand too far from each other, the work can't be done properly. Beside the pledge to shield meatpacking companies from any legal liability if workers become ill or died, there are issues here about which Judaism has much to say. The first is the sanctity of human life above virtually everything else. The second is the recognition that meat-eating should never have been on the menu in the first place and should be limited in any case. Let's take that last one first by examining Jewish law's attitude towards animals in general and meat-eating specifically. To do so, let's begin at the beginning. Genesis 1.29 has God saying to the first human, quote, See, I give you every seed-bearing plant that is upon all the earth, and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit. They shall be yours for food. And to all the animals on land, to all the birds of the sky, and to everything that creeps on earth, in which there is the breath of life, I give all the green plants for food, unquote. There's nothing here said about meat being on the menu. 
On the other hand, there's something profound in these verses beyond telling us that we're to be vegetarians. All other living creatures also are commanded to be vegetarians. Commanded. The phrase dumb animal comes easily to many lips. It's often used in the secular world as the reason why we need to care for them. But the Torah doesn't consider animals or birds to be dumb. Animals and birds may not reason as we do, and they may not have brains capable of what our brains are capable of. But they're not dumb. If the Torah considered them to be dumb, it wouldn't have quoted God as commanding them to do anything, much less telling them what they may or may not eat. It would have commanded us to see to it for them. It would have said something like, And you are to give green plants for food to all the animals on land, to all the birds of the sky, and to everything that creeps on earth in which there is the breath of life. It doesn't say that because it doesn't consider animals to be dumb. Animals have feelings, they have emotions, and they understand commandments. Science backs up the Torah's attitude. A recently published study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences confirms earlier studies that demonstrate that animals have emotions, even envy, and earlier studies also showed that animals have a moral sense. The Torah knew that all along. God commanded the animals to be fruitful and multiply and to keep away from eating other animals, just as he did humans. And because they failed to heed God, just as humans did, they too were destroyed in the great flood. God wouldn't command those who can't understand those kinds of commandments, and he certainly wouldn't punish them for not understanding what they're incapable of understanding in the first place. The Torah demonstrates this attitude in various ways. For example, it commands us to not remove an animal from its mother until it's weaned, and it also commands us not to remove the eggs or fledglings of a mother bird while she's able to watch us do so. Why would God command such things if not because the animals have emotions? The great flood, the Torah tells us, came about because violence in the world reached epidemic proportions with people killing people, people killing animals or birds, animals or birds killing animals or birds, and animals or birds killing people. As the Babylonian Talmud explains it, quote, Meat was not permitted to the first human, for it is written, See, I give you every seed-bearing plant that is upon all the earth, and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit, they shall be yours for food. And to all the animals on land, but is, is not written, and the animals on land are for you. However, when the sons of Noah came along, he permitted meat-eating as it states, as with the green grasses, I give you all these, unquote. God realized that all his creatures have a bloodlust in their nature. When the waters of the flood dried up and the dry land appeared, therefore, God modified his earlier decree. Meat eating would be allowed, but within certain rules. There's an interesting explanation for the Torah's concern about animals that was offered by the 14th century biblical commentator and philosopher Ibn Kaspi. The Torah tells us that God created all that exists with a burst of light, a big bang, as it were. Everything that exists flowed from that light and what it contained. It follows, then, that every natural thing that exists in this world was created from the same substance as we were. Science says the same thing, by the way. Everything that exists in the universe originated from the big bang. 
That led Ibn Kaspi to say, therefore, that all creatures, great and small, are ilu avotenu, meaning they are like our ancestors. As such, they must be treated with the same respect due to our human ancestors. That's why the Torah wanted us to be vegetarians. When that proved impossible for us, it amended the rules to allow meat, but then added new rules designed to keep humans from causing pain to the creatures we kill for food. From the aftermath of the Great Flood on, the Torah takes very seriously the welfare of animals. When they came along, the sages of blessed memory even set aside their own Shabbat restrictions to save animals from suffering because, quote, the law against pain to animals is biblical, unquote, and thus takes precedence over their rulings, as the Talmud puts it. This includes unloading a pack animal that's laboring under too great a burden, according to Maimonides, the Rambam. Unloading a pack animal is forbidden labor on Shabbat, at least by the sages, but the animal's welfare comes even before Shabbat's restrictions. The sages prohibited a person from owning an animal unless he or she could care for it, required that animals be given their meals before humans get theirs, and banned the injuring or killing of animals for no good reason. The result of all this legislating is a category of law known as Tsar Baale Chaim, which literally means causing distress to living things. This category of law is well-rooted in the Torah. Sometimes it shows up in oblique ways, but more often the Torah's concern for animals and birds shows up in pointed references. Two, for example, are found in Exodus chapter 23. The first one states, when you see the donkey of your enemy lying under its burden and would refrain from raising it, you must nevertheless raise it with him. Deuteronomy goes even further, stating, if you see your fellow's donkey or ox fallen on the road, do not ignore it, you must help him raise it. The law in Deuteronomy makes sense. Who wouldn't want to help out a friend in need? But think of what the Exodus verse says. It's your enemy's donkey, someone who probably hates you as much as you hate him but you still have to help him because his animal is suffering. The second direct reference in Exodus 23 expands on a law in the Ten Commandments. There, the Torah already declared that on Shabbat, not even animals could be made to work. Now, in Exodus 23, it provides the explanation, in order that your animals may rest, its words. In Deuteronomy, in a law I mentioned earlier, the Torah requires us to chase far away a mother bird before stealing her fledglings or her nesting eggs. It also forbids muzzling an ox during threshing because its instinct would be to graze and the muzzle would cause it psychological pain. Psychological pain shows up in some other laws as well, including the mother bird law. The post-flood rules were meant to apply to everyone. Israel, however, was given a far more restrictive code than humankind in general, precisely to keep us focused on the Torah's intent. Killing animals, and presumably birds, for food in ancient Israel originally was limited to the sacred precincts of the Mishkan, the portable tabernacle that preceded the temple in Jerusalem. In other words, it had to be done under sacred cover, in acknowledgment that killing the animal is being done under God's grudging sanction, not to mention his watchful eye. In commenting on this verse, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, the late 19th century biblical commentator, says the killing of an animal without such sacred cover, quote, is to be taken as murder, unquote. 
That rule, however, could only work in the confined area of a wilderness encampment. Once the people were settled in the land of Israel, their lust for meat would cause them to violate the law if they lived too far away from the sanctuary. This could lead to a general rejection of Torah law, so the Torah set new ground rules on the eve of the people entering the land. Here's what the Torah says in Deuteronomy. Quote, when the Lord enlarges your territory as he has promised you, and you say, I shall eat some meat, for you have the urge to eat meat, you may eat meat whenever you wish. If the place where the Lord has chosen to establish his name is too far from you, you may slaughter any of the cattle or sheep that the Lord gives you, as I have instructed you, and you may eat to your heart's content in your settlements, unquote. Obviously, if you live near the sanctuary, the sacred cover rule still applies. Note, however, the very pointed phrase in that commandment, for you have the urge to eat meat. It doesn't say if you want to eat meat. It pointedly says you have the urge to eat meat. The Talmudic sages inferred from this that meat eating should be a sometimes thing at best. A person should only eat meat if, quote, he has an extraordinary appetite for it, unquote, not just an everyday craving. The sages pointedly added that parents shouldn't pass on this meat-eating urge to their children. One reason the Talmud would rather we didn't have so much meat in our diets is that it's not the healthiest of foods. Says the Talmud, among the, quote, things that bring on a man's sickness in a severe form are beef, fat meat, roast meat, poultry, and roasted egg, unquote, among other foods almost all with a heavy fat content. Given all this, it follows that Judaism wouldn't be upset with a meat shortage. But let's say, for a moment, that Jewish law mandated meat-eating, that it made meat-eating a mitzvah. Shabbat is a mitzvah, but as you heard a moment ago, the laws of Shabbat take a back seat if an animal's welfare is concerned. It does the same for humans, of course. In fact, almost all of Judaism's laws, literally 99.5% of the Torah's mitzvot, take a back seat where life is concerned, especially human life. The exceptions are if someone says your life will be forfeit unless you kill another person or commit a sexual crime, rape or incest against another person or to lead a community into apostasy. In those three cases, you have to allow yourself to be killed. Those are the only exceptions. And the reason why their exceptions should be obvious. There are supposedly 613 commandments in the Torah, 610 of them, 99.5% out of 613, must stand aside, even if the danger to life is just a possibility, not even a certainty. The principle of law involved is known as pikuach nefesh, threat to life. Pikuach nefesh is considered to be preeminent in Jewish law, and that's not just hyperbole. To begin with, Leviticus chapter 19 demands of us, quote, you shall not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor, unquote. In other words, we have to be proactive in trying to save someone's life. It's not an option. The Babylonian Talmud tractate Sanhedrin offers us an example. It says, quote, If a person sees another person drowning in the sea, or being dragged by an animal, or being attacked by bandits, he is obligated to come to his rescue. He is obligated to come to his rescue, unquote. Maimonides, the Rambam, codified this in his Code of Jewish Law, quote, Anyone who is able to rescue and nonetheless does not violates the prohibition of do not stand idly by, unquote. 
by able to rescue, Jewish law means either we're able to do the rescuing or if there's time, we must hire someone to do it. Again, this is not an option. It's a requirement. How do we know, though, that this holds true even if what we have to do violates one of God's laws? Leviticus chapter 19, verse 5, quotes God as saying this, quote, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my ordinances, which if a man does so, he shall live by them. I am the Lord, unquote. Ezekiel and Nehemiah both refer to that phrase in their prophetic books. But what does that mean? The Talmud supplies the answer, quote, Man shall live by God's laws, not die by them, unquote. The extra Talmudic text, the Tsefta, makes the same point, using the same words, as does the Rambam in his Code of Jewish Law. And just in case anyone thinks that this applies only to men, because Leviticus 18.5 only says a man, and that women's lives therefore don't count, the Tractate Sanhedrin points out that the verse in Leviticus doesn't say if a priest, Levite, or Israelite does them. It simply says man, meaning all humankind in general, man or woman, regardless of who that man or woman is, by the way. Simply put, if a person's life is in danger, even if only as a possibility, the law must take a back seat. Life, you should pardon the unintended pun, trumps the law. Some examples will suffice. Our sages taught that on Yom Kippur, when we're commanded by the Torah to fast, quote, we nevertheless feed a pregnant woman who smells and craves food, even unkosher food, until she recovers. We feed a sick person on the advice of a doctor, and if there is no doctor present, we feed him on his own word until he says enough, unquote. Another law in the Talmud states, quote, if a person is seized with an obsessive craving for food, he's to be fed even with non-kosher food until he recovers. Whatever threatens to endanger life supersedes the observance of Shabbat. The command was also, by the way, referring to Yom Kippur, and Yom Kippur itself is considered the Shabbat of Shabbatot, the Sabbath of Sabbaths. Clearly, not only does the law supersede the observance of Shabbat, it also supersedes the kosher laws and just about every other law. Life comes before law in Judaism. Finally, there's this from the Talmud, quote, If debris falls and it is not known whether someone is buried under it, or whether that person is dead or alive, or whether that person is Jewish or not, we remove the debris from that person even on Shabbat, unquote. In other words, almost nothing, not even Shabbat or the laws of Kashrut, takes precedence when life is threatened, and it doesn't even matter if the person is not Jewish. So, even if Jewish law insisted that we must eat meat, Jewish law would still close the meatpacking plants during this pandemic. Considering that Jewish law actually seeks to discourage excessive meat eating, it certainly wouldn't want them opened at this time. That being said, the Torah puts forth numerous laws regarding health and well-being, including that the person causing an injury must pay for the injured person's cure, as I mentioned earlier. The Torah also puts forth numerous laws regarding how one is to treat the laborer. It follows, then, that if a concern for health and well-being and for the laborer are among its laws, ordering any action that violates these laws are forbidden by the Torah from the get-go. Clearly, then, the difference between Jewish law and secular law is most obvious in the order this week to keep meatpacking plants open. 
The Defense Production Act supposedly gives the president the right to do that, but Jewish law absolutely forbids it. As I noted at the beginning of this podcast, however, this concern for human life is being ignored in some of the communities people refer to as ultra-Orthodox or ultra-religious. The thousands of people who crowded streets in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn this week for a rabbi's funeral is just the latest example of the disregard such people have for the health and safety of themselves and everyone else. People view these communities as being the only authentic observers of Jewish law, so they assume Jewish law has nothing to say about putting life above law. As you've just heard, though, that's not true. Get over the notion that the people in these communities are the only authentic observers of Jewish law. They're not authentic. They march to the tune of different drummers, and in doing so, they often disregard normative Jewish law. In this case, as some of their leaders have publicly stated, studying Torah is all the protection anyone needs. They say this despite the fact that the Torah itself requires people with infectious diseases to be isolated from the community, and because the Talmud rejects relying on miracles to preserve life. Because these communities are seen by others as being authentic in their observance, they're violating another important law in addition to life over law. This other law is found in this week's Torah portion in Parashat Kedoshim, and it's the law of Chilul Hashem, a law that forbids doing anything that gives God a bad name. Acting as though the sanctity of human life is not a Jewish concern, meaning that God cares more about his laws than about people's lives, is a flat-out Chilul Hashem. Chew on that until next week. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast. Go to www.shamai.org Go to www.shamai.org and email me, please. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy and stay safe.